Well, I uh, mentioned Jared and Kristen Johnston in that prayer, and I want to use them this morning to make an illustration. And so if you would just imagine with me, uh, Jared and Kristen, most of you know they are members of Redeemer Church, but they live in China, which is why they're never here. And so they are members who live in southwest China. They're, they're seeking to reach unreached people groups in China. And right now, they're just in the throes of language. They're just in the throes of, of learning how to even communicate with the people there. They have a long road ahead of them to, to reach people there. But imagine with me that, that one day someone comes to them, and, and they know perfect English, and, and they're, all, they're able to translate. And they say, they say, here, I've got a group of people in my house that want to hear what you have to say. I'll translate for you. Come. Let's just say that happened today. And so they're like, okay, we get, we get a chance here. And so we, they go, and they preach the gospel. And what happens? People respond. P- people believe. They repent. They, they, they come to Christ. Now, now, how exciting would that be? I mean, we would all just be thrilled. That, that's what we pray for ultimately, for them. We pray that, that that day will come when they get to preach the gospel in a language they can understand and that God would grant faith and repentance. So let's just say that that day came. And what a thrill that would be. But then imagine just, just a few days later, the local authorities there catch wind of what has happened and they force Jared and Christian to come home. J- just in the, in the days immediately following that, they, they are forced to come back here. I mean, that would be so discouraging, wouldn't it? For them to have to come back and leave these new disciples, leave these new believers without a church, without discipleship, without a pastor, just just there in China by themselves. And if that happened, you know Jared would be praying for them. Jared and Christian would be be seeking to find a way for someone to reach them. They'd be calling missionaries and other places in China and saying, can you please go and check on these people, see how they're doing, try to encourage them and and say that, that a few months pass, and one day Jared gets a call. And, and, and it's a missionary in China. He says, Jared, I, I was able to get to the people that you're talking about, and I want you to know they are doing well. I want you to know that they are loving each other. I want you to know that they're sharing the gospel. I want you to know that even though there's persecution, they are sticking together, and they are steadfast in their hope. And, and I want you to know that they have joy in the Spirit Jared, I, I want you to know that, that, that God did something that day, that they're doing a, that God did a work in their lives, and, and they are doing well. How, how much joy would Jared feel in that moment? How, how much thanksgiving to God would he feel in that moment? That is what Paul feels about the Thessalonian church. That, that, that is exactly how Paul feels, because we remember from last week in Acts 17, he, he came, he preached the gospel, they received it, and then immediately persecution broke out and they were sent away. And we know from later in this letter in 1 Thessalonians that Paul was anxious. Paul had a period of time where he was wondering, are they still following Christ? Have they fallen away? Has the persecution been too much for them? And so he sent Timothy to go check on them. He said, Timothy, go find out how they're doing. And Timothy came back, and here's what he said to Paul and Silas. He said, Paul, Silas, I went to Thessalonica, and I checked on them, and here's here's what I found out. They're doing well. They're loving each other. They're sharing the gospel. They have joy in the Spirit. They're doing well. And and Paul wells up with thanksgiving. And normally, thanksgivings in Paul's letters are are one, two, three, four verses. But in 1 Thessalonians, his thanksgiving extends from chapter 1 through chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 3. Paul is just welling up with thanksgiving 
for this church that God has saved and that God has sustained in that faith, even though they weren't there to be part of it. And so this morning, we're going to see the beginning of Paul's thanksgiving for the Thessalonian church. Uh, We're in 1 Thessalonians. We're in a new series called Until He Comes. And last week, we looked at verse 1, and we, we saw that God cares about the local church. God plants the local church in the world. God places the local church in himself. God pursues the local church with his grace. He cares about the local church. This week, we're going to see that God transforms the local church. And the main idea this morning is is that God, through the gospel, transforms the local church. God, through the gospel, transforms the local church. The gospel transforms the local church. And so, if you would, look at 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to read verses 2 through 10, and then we'll walk through this together. 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The gospel transforms the local church. And in this morning's passage, we see three fruits of gospel transformation. Three fruits of gospel transformation. And so the first one we see is in verses 2 through 4. What we see is a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith. The gospel transforms the local church and produces the fruit of a dynamic faith. Look down again at verse 2 with me. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. After the initial greeting to the letter, what is the very first thing that Paul tells the Thessalonian believers? We thank God for you. He begins with thanksgiving. And look how emphatic he is about this. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, thanking God for all of you, remembering you. But Paul Paul is emphatic about his thanksgiving. When he thinks of the Thessalonian believers, he wells up with thanksgiving. And what is he thankful for? What is he thankful for? Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might notice 
something there. You might notice the, the three familiar words that Paul often puts together, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And, and these three characteristics are really the mark of a genuine believer. Genuine believers are marked by faith and hope and love. And Paul sees that in the Thessalonians. But what we can't miss is that Paul doesn't just say, for your faith, hope, and love, but he connects something to these things, doesn't he? He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. So what is Paul thanking God for? He's thanking God for the external evidence of these realities in their lives. He's thanking God that these characteristics are manifesting themselves in tangible ways in their lives. So he's saying, God, thank you that they have faith and that that faith is showing itself in good works. Thank you that they have love and that that love is expressing itself through sacrificial labor. Thank you that they have hope and that that hope is showing itself because they're persevering through persecution. He's thanking God for their dynamic faith, a living faith, a working faith, a faith that expresses itself in their lives. So we need to ask, if this is the fruit of gospel transformation, then what is the root? If if the dynamic faith is the fruit of the gospel, then what is the root? Look at what Paul says next in verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. The root of their dynamic faith is the electing love of God the Father. The electing love of God the Father. Look at what he says. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul's saying the fact that you have this dynamic faith in your lives assures us that God chose to save you. And it assures us that God indeed loves you. You see, the reality is that no one would ever have this type of living, dynamic faith unless God put it there. No one would ever have it unless God put it there. The Bible teaches that if we were left to ourselves, every one of us would go on rejecting God for the rest of our lives. We all have chosen the path to hell. Every one of us has chosen the path to hell. And left to ourselves, we would continue down that path. We would never turn from it because we would never want God. We we, we, we rejected Him. We would never want Him. And God, here's the thing, God could have let that be the whole story. That could have been it. That could have been the end. God would have been completely righteous to do that. Think about the fallen angels. There's no redemption there. The Bible never tells us that that after the fallen angels felt that God redeemed them, but, but, but God's righteous in that. He's just in that. He's holy in that. There's no wrong in that. They rejected God, and God could have done that with the human race that rejected him, that chose the path to hell, he could have left us there and been completely righteous in doing so. But instead, God, in his great love, has chosen to save some for no other reason than his glorious grace. This is what this passage is teaching. And I want to say this truth is mysterious, and this truth is hard. It's not meant to be easy. We shouldn't come to the Bible and, and look for truths that are easy to understand. We, we should look for what it says and, and say, even though I don't understand it, I'm going, I'm going to submit my life to it. But, but let's be sure to understand where the mystery lies, okay? 
if we understand that we have all freely chosen to reject God, then the mystery of election is not, why doesn't God save everyone? The mystery is not, why doesn't he save everybody? The mystery is, why did he save me? Why, why would he have saved me if I did that? Why did God save anyone? And the answer is because he chose to love you. Because he set his love on you. For, for nothing in you, not, not because something in you drew his love toward you, but because, because he chose to love you, he loved you. He looked down as someone that was completely unworthy of love and said, I'm going to love them. I'm going to put my grace on their lives. I'm going to make them my own, though they don't deserve it, because then they will be a trophy that magnifies my grace. And when that happens, what happens for us is we, we see his grace and we behold his glory and we find our joy in that. He set his love on you. And you may be asking yourself at this point, how, how do I know if God chose me? And, and this is what Paul's saying. The, the way you answer that question is by asking yourself, does my life show the fruit of gospel transformation? That's, what, that's the connection Paul's making. He says, I see this fruit in your lives, and this fruit assures me that God chose you. This fruit gives me confidence to say God loves you. And so, so we ask ourselves, does my life show that? Jesus taught the principle, you will know a tree by its fruit. So, so, so do you have apples? Then what are you? You're an apple tree. You have oranges, then what are you? You're an orange tree. So, so this morning, ask yourself, what kind of fruit am I bearing? What, what kind of tree am I? And, and so ask yourself these questions. Do you have a dynamic faith? What is your faith leading you to do day by day? To what extent are you sacrificially laboring for other people in love? How steadfast is your hope in trial? If you see these fruits in your life, then you can be confident that God has chosen you and God loves you. And if you don't see them, then I want to urge you this morning to keep on listening. Keep on listening so that even today you might personally experience that type of gospel transformation. That, 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 that you might hear the love of God for you today. And, and so the first fruit of gospel transformation is a dynamic faith. Dynamic faith. As we continue, Paul's thanking God for for the Thessalonians, and the second fruit that he thanks God for, the second fruit of gospel transformation is unshakable joy. Unshakable joy. Pick up in verse 4 with me. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And he says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In these verses, Paul is focusing on how the Thessalonians received him and Silas and Timothy when they brought the gospel to them. And he reminds them, when we brought the gospel to you, we, we didn't just preach words, but we preached in the power of the Spirit. We preached with full assurance, with full conviction. And, and it says, and here's how you responded. Look at verse 6 and 7. How do they respond? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So, so how did they respond when Paul and Silas and Timothy preached the gospel to them? He says they responded by becoming imitators of them and of the Lord Jesus himself. And in what specific way, what does he mean they became imitators? What is he pointing to? Look at what he says. He says, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the two things he mentions here? He says, much affliction, the joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction and joy. Affliction and joy. I mean, that is a combination that is not from this world. That is a combination that you don't find in this world. Remember, when they received the gospel, persecution immediately followed, and they could have turned back. But instead, they embraced affliction. And why did they embrace affliction? Because they had found a joy that was worth losing everything for. The way that they imitated Paul was that they counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. The way that they imitated Jesus was by embracing the suffering that was set before them for the, for the joy that was set before them. The Thessalonians bore the fruit of an unshakable joy, a joy that nothing in the world could take away because nothing in the world could, could compare to what this joy was. It's an unshakable joy. And again, we ask, well, what was the root of that joy? Notice what he says in verse 6. He calls it the joy of the Holy Spirit. The root of their unshakable joy was the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. It was the powerful ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who opened up their eyes so that they could clearly see the joy that was being offered to them in the gospel. This is something that, that we need to know, is that It's one thing to know the gospel, to to, to know who God is, who we are in our sin, who Jesus is, what Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sins, rising again, coming again. It's another thing to see that message and say, that's that's what I want. There's joy there. To to see it as glorious, to see it as, as desirable, to see it as precious. You can know the gospel cognitively, but but to see it as precious, to see it as a joy, to see God in the gospel as the treasure of your heart, that is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit accompanied their preaching with His divine power, and He caused the glory of the gospel to shine through. You know, Jesus told a story about a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. And he finds this treasure and he realizes this is worth more than all I have and it is greater than I could ever hope to earn for myself. This is a treasure of inestimable value. And so here's what this guy decided. He says, I need to buy that field. I could never find a way to get this treasure, but I'm going to get that field. And once I get the field, the treasure will be mine. And so, so only by buying the field could he gain the treasure. So, he, so here's the thing he had to do. He had to go and he had to sell everything he had to get that field. He, he had to sell his, his home. He had to sell his livestock. He had to sell his valuables. And then he had to put all that together with whatever he had saved. And he had to go and he had to buy that field. He had to lose it all to gain the treasure. Now, can you imagine what the people around him were thinking? For all they know, it's just a field. And and he is losing it all. 
He is selling it all. He is giving it all away. How foolish. It's just a field, right? But he knows it's really worth losing everything for because it's not just a field. In that field is an incomparable treasure, and knowing what he was gaining in that treasure made losing everything like losing nothing to him. In his joy, he sold all he had and bought that field. You know, the gospel is a message that requires us to lose everything. Embracing the gospel means inviting suffering and hostility and trial into your life. Jesus did not come with the gospel and say, come to me and you'll have a great life. He said, come to me and carry your cross. Come to me and count the cost. But then he promised joy on the other side of that, didn't he? Inside the field, which is the gospel, is is this treasure, which is Jesus Christ himself an eternal relationship with the God of glory. And through the working of the Spirit, the Thessalonians had discovered that truth. The Spirit opened their eyes to see that in the gospel there is a treasure. That treasure is Jesus himself. And it produced this unshakable joy in the midst of affliction. Nothing could shake them. Nothing would turn them away. And so this morning, ask yourself, do you have an unshakable joy? Is the God of the gospel an incomparable treasure to you? Have you lost everything for the joy set before you in Christ? When affliction comes, does it weaken or strengthen your joy in Jesus? This is the second fruit of the gospel, is this unshakable joy in Christ. When you see that Jesus is offered in the gospel, nothing can shake that joy that you find in him. The, the final fruit of gospel transformation in this passage is a resounding witness. A resounding witness. Read verse 8 with me. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You know, Paul tells the Thessalonians, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from them. So so this word that's translated sounded forth, it's the same word that we get our word echo from. And so it represents this loud, reverberating noise. Imagine that you go into a cave and and, and you yell something out, and, and what do you hear? You hear that over and over and over again, bouncing off the walls, reverberating back to you, reverberating out. And, and, and that is what is happening in Thessalonica. Paul came to them and he preached the gospel to them, and now the gospel is echoing out from them all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. From Thessalonica to Philippi to Athens to Corinth, the word of the Lord is sounding forth. It's echoing out. The message of the gospel is coming off their lips wherever they go. It, it, it's echoing out. But, but notice, Paul says not only is the word of the Lord sounding forth from you where you live, but but the news of your faith, your faith in God is spreading everywhere. Look at what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, For they themselves, that is the people everywhere, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven and whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, wherever Paul goes, 
people are telling him what they are hearing in Thessalonica. Here's what they're saying to Paul. They're, they're saying, we, we've heard about those Thessalonians. They used to worship idols, but now they're worshiping this new, invisible God who, who they say is the only true God. They're putting all their hope in a man named Jesus who they say is the Son of God. They say he rose from the dead. They say he's coming again. They're living lives in full faith that he's coming again, that he's going to judge the world, but he's going to save them on that day. He's going to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. People all around are hearing what happened to the Thessalonians. They have this resounding witness, don't they? And it has two dimensions. Just notice that the two dimensions of it. On one level, they are being active to share the gospel. The word of the Lord is echoing off of their lips. It came to them, and now it's bouncing off of them. It's going to others. They're spreading the word of Christ. But along with that, their testimony is ringing out even further. There has been such a deep and joyful transformation in their lives that they can't help but tell others about it. And others can't help but notice it. Their testimony has, has it's, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. It's it's moving out from them so that Paul actually goes so far as to say, we don't need to say anything. They know. They know about your faith. They know about your conversion. So so this is the third fruit of this gospel transformation, this resounding witness. So, So if that's the fruit, again, what's the root? It's the saving work of Jesus. The saving work of Jesus. Look in verses 9 and 10. This is probably the best summary of conversion in all of Scripture, right here. It says, They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is the essence of conversion. Repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus. Turning from idols to God and waiting, hoping in, putting your faith in Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, so, so we see repentance. It means, it means to turn the other way. And this is exactly what they did. They turned away from idolatry and they turned to God. They, they, they stopped serving idols and they started serving the living God. They were worshiping false gods, but now they're worshiping a true God. This is their repentance. And notice, this repentance is not driven by an effort to appease this God. This is not what happened. They didn't hear, God's going to judge you unless you shape up your life. And and then they try really hard. That's not what's happening. This repentance is driven by faith that through Jesus, this God has already appeased himself. Do Do you see that? Look at what Paul says about the person and work of Jesus. We see who he is. He's not only the man Jesus, but he is also the son of God. He is the God man. And we see what Jesus has done and will do. He died, he was raised from the dead, he will return, and when he does, he will deliver us from the wrath of God. He will deliver us from the holy judgment of God that is coming on the sin of the world. And the reason that we'll be delivered on that day is not because we have no sin for God to judge. It's because Jesus, in dying, already bore that judgment for us in his death on the cross. So so we had sin, and we faced wrath, and God sent his son, and his son bore that judgment, bore that wrath, and and when the Thessalonians heard that message, they turned to God in repentant faith. 
The saving work of Jesus led them to turn from their sin and turn to God, not because they were trying to earn God's favor, because God had done it all for them already. The Thessalonians heard this message because God chose to save them, and because the Spirit opened up their hearts, they repented and they put their faith in Jesus. And from that moment forward, the message echoed off their lips, and their testimony reverberated into the world. You know, when you think about um, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as Bill Belichick would say, Instachat, whatever else you want to include, you, you can recognize something about social media. And that's, that's that these platforms are so successful because people want to share what's going on in their lives. And not only do people want to share what's going on, people want to hear what's going on. And generally, the more significant an event is in someone's life, the more likely it is going to make its way to social media, right? So, you know, I used to put, like, my, my lunch on social media. That was very significant to me, you know? Just look, look at what I'm eating for lunch today. Probably wouldn't get that many people interested in that, though, right? But, but, but then you, 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 you get married or you have a baby, and, and, and you put that on, and, and everyone sees it and wants to know about it, and, and you're so excited to have a way to share it right? That's why it works so well, is because it gives us a chance to share and and to hear the news of what's going on in people's lives, to to hear what's happening. We we have this built-in desire to let people know when something big is happening in our lives. And here's the connection I want you to see, is that for these Thessalonian believers, their encounter with Jesus was so hugely significant for them that they couldn't stop talking about it. it. It was the best news they'd ever heard and the biggest thing that had ever happened to them. And that's why it echoed off their lips. And that's why their testimony resounded everywhere. It's because they, they had something significant happen, and they wanted to share that. And so ask yourself this morning, do you have a resounding witness? How significant is your salvation to you? Is it the best news you've ever heard and the biggest thing that's ever happened to you? Does it echo off your lips? Are you eager to share your testimony? This is the third fruit of gospel transformation. So so the gospel transforms the local church. And and that transformation shows itself through the fruit of a dynamic faith and an unshakable joy and a resounding witness. And so this morning... As we move to application, I want us to think about this from two angles. And and, and one is from the perspective of the Apostle Paul. And the other is from the perspective of the Thessalonians. I've asked a lot of questions this morning as we've gone through these. Do you have this faith? Do Do you have this joy? Do you have this witness? And I hope that as we go through these applications that that you can see the answer to that more clearly. So so first, I want us to look at Paul, and and the first application is to imitate Paul. Imitate Paul's practice of giving thanks for the gospel transformation in the lives of others. Here's what Paul does. He observes the fruit of gospel transformation, and and then he thanks God for that fruit. And then he tells the believers about his thanksgiving. He, He sees it, he thanks God for it, and then he tells them about it. That's what we see Paul doing. And we can learn a few things here this morning. One is that when you look at each other's lives, what do you see first? 
What do you see first when you think of each other? Do you see sin? Do you see weaknesses? You say, oh, I need to pray for that person about that. Paul, the first thing he sees is what God has done in their lives. Now, there's a place to see weaknesses. There's a place to see sins. We need to be intentionally intrusive in each other's lives to help each other grow, right? But Paul always begins with thanksgiving. He sees what God has done. He observes the fruit in their lives. And so let's practice first just just observing fruit in each other's lives. Let's observe what God is doing instead of jumping to what God has to do still. Second, what does Paul do when he observes these things? What is his response? It's to thank God. I mean, the Thessalonians are laboring. The Thessalonians are working. They're, they're steadfast, but, but he doesn't go and pat them on the back and say, great job, guys. You're doing awesome. No, he says, I thank God for these things. He gives the credit to God. Anytime that we see gospel fruit in someone's life, it's an occasion to worship God. Anytime we see gospel fruit, and it's an occasion for us to, to, to go to God and say, thank you for the way you're magnifying your grace, because that could never have come from them, because we know who we are. It's a chance to, to worship God, to exalt the power of the Spirit, to magnify the grace of the gospel. And so when we observe fruit in each other, let, let's look for it, and then let's thank God for it. Let's worship God for what he's doing in each other's lives. But finally, why, why does Paul tell them about it? I mean, he doesn't have to do that. He could have just kept it to himself, that he's he's thankful. Why does he want to say, I want you to know I'm thanking God for these things? It's because he wants to encourage them. You know, know, these believers are young. They're in the midst of persecution. They're struggling with assurance. and And he wants them to know, church, God has done something significant in your life, and I can see it. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. Keep following Christ. God is working in you. You know, the reality is that we often don't see the ways that God's working in us. What what we see is our struggles. What we see is our failings. What we see are our sins. And we can easily be discouraged. But, But one way that God encourages us is when another believer comes to us and they say, I want you to know I've been thanking God for for this fruit in your life. I want you to know that that I see God working in you. I want to encourage you to keep on going. That's what Paul is doing here. And, and, And church, this is such a spiritually healthy practice for us to do. Because here's the reality is that our sinful hearts are just bent inward. Like we we constantly are bending back toward ourselves in selfishness and self-centeredness. But when we take the time to observe evidence of grace in each other's lives, to thank God for it, to tell each other about it, here's what's happening. It's lifting our perspective upward toward God. And, and then it's it's pushing our perspective outward toward each other, away from ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to imitate Paul here. See the fruit in each other's lives. Thank God for it and tell each other about it. I took some time to do this earlier this week. And and church family, I want you to know that I thank God for the fruit of gospel transformation in you. Uh, Just this week, thinking only of what I'm seeing right now in the body, here's what I'm thanking God for. I'm thanking God for your desire to have your sin exposed. 
I'm thanking God for your readiness to confess that sin, your readiness to turn from that sin. I'm thanking God for your sacrificial labor for the body, the the time and energy and sacrifices that you are putting in to help the body grow. I'm thanking God for your readiness to share the gospel, your, 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 your eagerness to let people know about Christ. I'm thanking God for your, your willingness to pursue peace, your, your desire to move through conflict, your desire for reconciliation. I'm thanking God for your Christ-centeredness in trials. I asked a lot of questions earlier, and here's what I want you to know, is that God has done a work of gospel transformation in you. He's done it. He, he, he chose you, and he loves you. And so this morning, be encouraged, and encourage each other the same way. The second application is to imitate the Thessalonians. Imitate the Thessalonians and imitate their model of gospel transformation. Look again at verse 7, what he says. He, he says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became an example. And, and, and that word example, this is important to realize, he's not saying that all of you became examples. He's saying that you collectively became an example to all the believers. It's singular. What he's saying is, essentially, you are a model church. And we know that Paul felt that way because in 2 Corinthians, he points to them. And he says, out of their poverty, that they wanted to give. He points to them. He says, they're a model church. God has done something. Be like them, is what he's saying. And that's true for us this morning. We are Redeemer Church. We want to be like the Thessalonian church. We want to share their dynamic faith and their unshakable joy, and their resounding witness. They are a model, and that's what we want to see here. We want to see those fruits. But how do we go about that? How do we imitate someone's fruit? Well, we don't just want to start trying harder. Joy is not a light switch that we can flip on. We can't just make our witness resound throughout the region. If we just try to imitate their fruit, then we're just stapling fruit onto a dead tree. Right? It won't last. It'll look good at first, maybe, but it won't last. If we're going to bear the same fruit as this church, then we need to tend to the same roots. And here's the reality. Behind their dynamic faith was the electing love of God. Underneath their unshakable joy was the powerful ministry of the Spirit. Before they had a resounding witness, they personally experienced Jesus' saving work. And this is how God designed the gospel, so that the only fruit that ever comes arises from his grace for his glory. So if we're going to bear more fruit for the gospel as a local body, if we're going to keep growing and keep bearing more fruit, then we need to plant our roots in the soil of the gospel. If we're going to increase in the evidences of grace in our lives, then we need to continually drink from the amazing grace of God. Uh, as the music team comes forward, I just want to make one final observation about this God. You may have noticed it, that, that as you look at the roots of this fruit in their lives, it's the love of God the Father. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the salvation of Christ the Son. The, the fruit of the gospel comes from the grace 
of the triune God. He has done it all. There is nothing for us to do but go back to him and to celebrate his grace that comes to us, not because of us, but because he loves us and has done it all. As we do that, we will see these fruits more and more in our lives for his glory. Let's stand and let's celebrate his grace together.